0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW.
1: Good evening, and welcome to the Jay Night Hour. My guests tonight are James Taggart, CEO of Taggart Transcontinental Railroad, Wesley Mouch, a noted Washington lobbyist from the Philadelphia law firm Young, Stevens & Sachs, and Ellis Wyatt, the oil and gas entrepreneur who is responsible for the current economic boom in Colorado. My first question is to Mr. Taggart. Sir, your company is one of the few managing to survive in our current economic downturn. Yet there have been dozens of derailments on your lines in the last year alone. How do you explain that? With any growth, there can be growing pains. People shouldn't
2: have to worry about how they're gonna get where they need to go. We must act to benefit society as a whole. People aren't gonna be going anywhere without oil. That means the railroads like Mr. Taggers, need to be fixing their railways here instead of adding new ones something?
3: like those in Mexico. Can I get a cup of coffee?
1: He makes a very good point, Mr. Tiger.
2: Do you have any money? I got plenty of money. And Tiger Transcontinental is committed to sharing the burden in these tough
4: Hey, what happened to you? Expanding
2: our lines into more and more territories. Who's John Goh? We don't need more rail lines.
1: morning, London. It's Thursday, August 15, 2013. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into colour, colour into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Welcome to the show today. We're 519-661-3600. There's always a number you can reach us at or email us at feedback at org. As you might have guessed from our opening clip today, the subject's going to be the first in a series of, sub- of shows on, essentially, Ayn Rand and her philosophy. And uh, one of the other issues we're going to be looking at is uh, is government above the law. Does Government Operate Above the Law? I wonder if that's the major thing that Ayn Rand wanted to teach us, to say to us that perhaps government should operate on the same principles as the rest of us. Welcome to the show. Last week I began a thread of topics and themes that we're going to continue with today. If you recall, last week we responded to the issues raised by a first-time listener named Robert, after which we explored the ideas of Frederick Bastiat, whose theme of plunder as being the bane of mankind made for a very powerful statement. Today I plan to continue our summer tutorial and review some of the basic principles of a free and prosperous society and some of the principles that people are... why some some people are opposed to these things. Always under attack, of course by collectivists and state planners of every type is the economic system that has come to be known as capitalism, and on which all of the economic ills of our socialist and collectivist institutions are always blamed. <laughs> now, as any regular or even semi-regular listener to this show might know, it's our it's our contention that capitalism's most significant defender was not Adam Smith, or a host of early economists, but rather philosopher-novelist Ayn Rand, who, like capitalism itself, is now posthumously finding herself blamed, well, for greed, I guess. At least that's the case made by a fellow named Gary Weiss. Gary Weiss hates Ayn Rand and everything, yes, everything she stood for. And he wrote a book about it, titled Ayn Rand Nation, purposely titled to sound like Aryan Nation, <laughs> with the subtitle, The Hidden Struggle for America's Soul. just came out, right, relatively speaking, uh, published in February 2012 by St. Martin's Griffin. Now, Gary Weiss is described on the jacket of his book as a, quote, journalist and the author of two books probing the underside of finance, Wall Street vs. America and Born to Steal. He was an award-winning investigative reporter for Business Week, and his articles have appeared in Condé Nast Portfolio, Parade Magazine, Salon, and the New York Times, among other publications. Now, all I can say is if Ayn Rand Nation is indicative of the other stuff Gary Weiss writes, it's not worth the paper it should never have been written on. Except in a very perverse sense. Now, in that perverse sense, this book has a major value. May I say, it's almost priceless, especially to people like me. I mean, this book is so wrong about so many things, so many popular misconceptions, in fact, that it would have been extremely difficult for anyone not so emotionally motivated as its author to compile all of the wrong stuff under one cover in one book would have taken me years to collect so much intellectual spam in one place for such easy to access reference. In fact, there's more, more, seriously, there's more than enough here to keep me going for at least two broadcasts of Just Right and more if necessary. And I think it might be necessary because uh, this could become the first of a series of, of a long series of shows. I won't even be able to get past the introductory chapter today, believe it or not. There's so much to deal with just in the first few pages of the book alone and here's kind of the best part for me looking to the future from my own personal perspective I actually know and have met with and talked with a large number of the people who are the major targets of Wiese's criticisms and attacks and I also happen to know a lot of the real stories behind the story he's telling besides Ayn Rand herself who basically I've never met nor corresponded with perhaps Wiese's major target in the book is none other than Yaron Brook head of the Ayn Rand Institute who appeared live on this show, just right, and who spoke to, uh, you know, the whole Freedom Party and Objectivist crowd in Toronto just a few months ago, which was also videotaped by none other than our own Robert Vaughn, and lots more. But believe it or not, we won't even be getting to that part of the story until our next installment on Ayn Rand Nation. Publishers Weekly has a comment printed on the front cover of Ayn Rand Nation that reads, quote, a riveting and disturbing inquiry into Ayn Rand's widespread influence on American economics and politics. Now change the word disturbing to disturbed and you would have a perfect description of how I see Gary Weiss's Ayn Rand Nation. I kid you not it's really bad but that's what makes it both riveting and disturbed and it, it deals with so many ideas that I've heard Spread around there in the uh, I guess you could call it the urban mythology of Ayn Rand that goes around. The book is a glaring demonstration of getting essential facts just about a hundred percent wrong, while getting non-essential facts fairly correct. Add a few made-up stories and outright lies, <laughs> or misinterpretations, if you want to call it that. Now, if that's what you have to do to re- you know to resort to to refute Rand, then. Obviously, she's already won the argument, whatever the hell that argument might actually be about, since guys like Weiss are constantly evading that glaring elephant in the room, disguising their own ideas, because their ideas are generally regarded as, you know, reprehensible once they are morally identified for what they are. And Ayn Rand, of course, is a direct threat to exposing the Gary Weisses of the world. And now that ignoring those ideas is no longer working as a strategy for them, expressing their hatred of the good for being good in the form of Ayn Rand herself appears to be the next phase of the con game, the con games of public plunderers throughout the ages. We're going to separate the fact from the fiction today and in the process we hope to also separate the truth from the hatred of rationality and fantasy. And maybe we're going to have a little fun along the way too. Now, I've been told it's in poor taste and practice to go to the last chapter of a book first. And I agree with that if you're talking about fiction. But that's not something I do when I'm reading non-fiction. In the case of non-fiction, especially where there's an argument or counter-argument of some sort being made, I want to know where it's leading. That, that's what makes the argument valid or not valid. Knowing the conclusion is what makes you know, the road towards it interesting and relevant. I would prefer that authors of such arguments always begin with their conclusions so that I can be in a position of knowing on which objective or standard the person making the argument is actually operating on. That way, I can judge objectively. By the way, that's one of the things I, I hate about reading Scottish philosopher John McMurray, uh, of whom I'm a, I'm a great fan. You've heard me refer to him many times on the show. But what he does, you know, he he takes you down every road possible before he lets you know which is the right road and why. And, you know, just a literary point I'm making here. So, here's a bottom line from Gary Weese's Ayn Rand Nation from the opening paragraph of the epilogue of his book, okay? And here's what he reads, or, or writes. Quote, there is no doubt what an objectivist America would mean. We may not be around to see it, but it's likely will be here for its earliest manifestations. They may have already arrived. The shape of a future objectivist world has been a matter of public record for the past half-century since Ayn Rand, the Brandons, Alan Greenspan, and other objectivist theoreticians began to set down their views in objectivist newsletters. When he casually defended repeal of child labor laws in the debate with Miles Rappaport, Yaron Brook was merely repeating long-established objectivist doctrine summarized by Leonard Peikoff as, quote, government is inherently negative, end quote. It is a worldview that has been static through the decades, its tenets reiterated endlessly by Rand and her apostles. No government except the police, courts of law, and the armed services. Which, by the way, is a little like saying no government except for government. And, by the way, when he says that, you know, they don't have, objectivists don't have any doubts, I think even an objectivist might have doubts about what an objectivist society would be like in practice. But, as they say, action removes a doubt that theory cannot solve. Guys like Weiss don't even want anyone to consider even trying to live rationally. He's arrived at his conclusion without any examples repeatedly reminding us that there's never been a truly capitalist world of where objectivism has been tried and proven itself to fail. You know, like, where is that exactly? You know, well, like all people detached from reality, his proof is in the future. He looks towards the future. That's what he sees as his image of why it doesn't work, based on what he believes today, of course. Now, he continues that uh, Rand stood for no regulation of anything By any government. Now, that's ridiculous. Capitalism means a separation of economics and the state and nothing else. It means not fixing prices by government. It means not granting monopolies to business or labor groups by government. It means letting the consumer, not government, decide what he or she wants to buy or sell on a free and very highly regulated marketplace. Regulated to keep it free. Free from what? free from coercion, which is why we need police, courts, and armed services, or in a word, government, and not regulation as such, but rule of law. Then he continues, the future world of Ayn Rand would have no Medicare or Medicaid, no Social Security, no public schools. Uh, Interesting there, because Ayn Rand herself actually advocated vouchers for the public school system, which is far short of the mark, even as a means to get from a totally state-controlled system to a truly public school system. I prefer government as referee, not a player in the game of education, and there's a better way than vouchers, but that's a particular, not a principle, and uh, subject for a future show, I guess. And he continues, of course, no public hospitals, no public anything, in fact, he writes, just individuals, each looking out for himself, not asking for help or giving help to anyone. Now, even on its face, this statement is a little absurd. It neither describes what Ayn Rand advocated, nor how she lived her private life, you know, which she felt was nobody's business, quite frankly. And he writes, an objectivist America would be a dark age of unhindered free enterprise. Hmm. Far more primitive and Darwinian than anything seen before. Objectivists know this. What perhaps they do not always appreciate, given their less-than-fanatical approach to reality... Is that a compliment? I don't know. ...is is what turning the clock back would mean. Or perhaps they do not care, he concludes. And that's in his epilogue to his book. Now... Like, wow, I find, I find that both disturbed and disturbing. This is the bully mentality from its root to its view of life. Uh, you know, this is a plunderer, as Fre- the French statement and economist Frederick Bastiat would have said. I have to I have a question: How is it possible, quote, to be fanatical about reality if you're committed to it? Aren't fanatics traditionally the ones who are detached from reality or going out of their way to avoid reality? So now a fanatic is a person who wants to attach themselves to reality and doesn't deter from reality. That's a fanatic now. Imagine that. But the outrageous fears just expressed by Weiss in his support, a uh, supposed case, against Ayn Rand are, are utterly irrelevant to anything Rand or any other advocate of what is wrongly referred to as less government. Um... You know, they're the same fears and conclusions arrived at by any socialist or collectivist mentality when confronted with any discussion or movement towards reducing the economic burden of government upon its tax-paying citizens. I- I've lived this. Philosophy be damned. You're an anarchist, even if you suggest lowering taxes by 1%. It's <laughs> seriously... Want a 0% tax increase in your community? Just listen to all the naysayers, the plunderers out there who live among us, whether knowingly or not, I'm not saying that, who will say some variant of the same things that Weiss has in his list of what he sees as the future objectivist world. There'll be no more social services, there'll be no more money for hospitals, who's going to look after the poor, all of that stuff. These folks have probably never even heard of Ayn Rand or Gary Weiss. They should be introduced to both of them. So we'll start at the beginning, on the other side of our upcoming audio interlude, with the introduction of Gary Weiss's Ayn Rand Nation, which is ironically titled, Why Ayn Rand Matters. And even that he gets wrong, but at least he admits that Ayn Rand does matter. We'll find out why as we begin our journey, and of course we have to have a bit of fun along the way, through the Ayn Rand Nation that is envisaged by one writer who's terrified at the the prospect. Now... For those of you unfamiliar with the sci-fi fantasy TV series Sliders, it was based on the premise of its multiple dimension traveling characters always ending up in some parallel universe, sometimes only slightly different from the world they left, our world of course. And occasionally, extremely so. The differences were always caused by some absence of or a change in a past historical event, could be political, could be scientific, could even be geological or astronomical. So, my challenge to all of you listening right now is this Does the following scenario, as depicted in a Sliders episode entitled The Good, the Bad, and the Wealthy, depict the world feared by a guy like Gary Weiss and advocated by someone like me? Or is it the world feared by Ayn Rand and folks like me and advocated by Gary Weiss? You decide. Here we go.
3: Hey, cowboy. Anywhere around here where we can get some cow? The Wall
4: Street saloons, just up the street, it's. Got a businessman special.
3: Thanking you kindly, sir. Thanks, pal. A saloon called Wall Street. That's an unlikely combination. Food is food, Professor, and I'm hungry. (sighs) What's the deal with this place?
0: It looks like the Wild West, but everybody's driving modern cars. It sure doesn't look like San Francisco.
3: It's got to be. There's the Transamerica Tower right there. Here we go. What do we have? Mm -hmm. Steak! Steak and potatoes, Steak and eggs. Plank steak, ribeye steak. t bowl steak.
4: Armadillo steak?
3: Not too much for vegetarians, though. The steak's fine with me. It's is that hillbilly cattle wall I can live without. Oh, Guys, you better get used to it.
4: San Francisco, Texas?
3: Listen, I'll go to a bookshop or a newsstand and see if I can find out something about this place. Meet you back here.
5: George Bush must have been
4: re-elected here. LBJ. Who's the guy in the hat?
2: Sam Houston, first president of the Republic of Texas.
4: It scares me that you know that.
2: They've got a stock ticker hanging over the bar.
4: Oh,
5: maybe they're all brokers and they have to check the market. Stop it, Jed. Your Quarrel's not with Clip.
6: It is now. Get up.
2: You OK?
7: Leave him be. You hear me, boy? I heard you, jerk. You all right? Yeah. How about a dead eye? you going to play hero? If I have to.
5: He's unarmed, Jed.
7: Look, we're just going to leave, all right? Die like a man or die like a coward.
1: You have until the customary count of three. One.
4: You can't
1: be serious.
3: Three. Well, what do we do now? He killed him.
2: Somebody out negotiated Jed Dalton. We saw the whole thing, Sheriff. It was self-defense. Hey, you, come here for a minute. Yeah, you tell him what happened. You know something about uh, this cliff? It's true, Sheriff. Dalton was trying to keep me from my winnings, this man. Came to my fence.
1: So out of the goodness of your heart, you decided to make a preemptive move against Jack Bullock's corporate counsel. Afraid I gotta take you into town, son.
2: Surprised the bar association won't want in on this.
3: What do you mean there are no lawyers in the yellow pages?
5: It's SC negotiators. We don't need a negotiator.
3: Let's check into the hotel. We'll ask them. In 1836, Sam Houston became president of the Republic of Texas, as on our world. While the North fought the South, the Republic of Texas expanded westwards, gobbling up all the land. So what you're saying is that there's no state of California here. It all belongs to Texas. Well, a state is just an arbitrary political division. It's not necessarily based on geography.
5: You guys are unbelievable. We need to find a lawyer for Quinn, and you're discussing geography?
3: It appears we've landed on a world where modern business follows the code of the Old West. A lawyer here is literally a hired gun. Forewarned is forearmed, Miss Wells. Unless we know what we're up against, how can we possibly help him? And We thought TV was violent on our world.
4: He's plastered.
3: Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me help you. Oh, man, what have you been drinking? Courage. Oh, uh, uh, uh,
2: uh. I'm Wild Bill Hickok, and every 2 big gunslinger in the town wants a piece of me. You were in another gunfight? You've heard of corporate gunslingers? In this world, they're real gunslingers. Cuts the red tape of contracts, I guess.
0: Help me get him to bed. First thing in the morning, we're out of here. I'm okay. I'm okay. Uh.
3: Are you all right?
2: Nothing a bullet between the eyes wouldn't cure. Be careful what you wish for.
4: I'll see if I can find some aspirin. Just be ready to go, okay?
2: can't stop thinking about the man who died. I never in a million years thought I'd fire a gun at someone. Hey, he was killed to be killed. I mean, it's not like you did anything to provoke the guy,
3: right? I know. Not to diminish in any way your sense of remorse, but these people
1: have different values. Life here is cheap negotiation at the point of a gun. Is that capitalism, or is that socialism? Why Ayn Rand Matters, the introduction to Ayn Rand Nation by Gary Weiss, who has written the book to warn us of the dangers of exposing ourselves to Ayn Rand's ideas and philosophy. In so doing, he's actually demonstrated the necessity of exposing ourselves to her philosophy and ideas, and at least to the ones concerning rational governance, for without that, we're in real trouble. And here's what he writes in the introduction of his book. Quote, I never had any reason to write about about Ayn Rand. In my many years as a reporter covering Wall Street, mostly its underside, she inhabited a vague far-right politics. And her theories, I thought, had no relevance. I was wrong. And to make matters worse, I was wrong for a long time. I realized that Rand provided the missing piece of a puzzle I'd been pondering since the depths of the financial crisis in 2009. The why of it all, the moral component of the behavior to which we had all been exposed. What made accomplished men so selfish, so seemingly amoral, so lacking in public-spiritedness, so thirsty for a buck? These men personified a philosophy. Whether it was explicitly adopted or implicit was not important, what mattered was that they lived it. This philosophy of greed had a philosopher, Ayn Rand, had been there all along and I never noticed. This book is my attempt to correct that oversight. It's all over now, yet the failure of deregulation and untrammeled capitalism doesn't seem to matter anymore. Rand has experienced an extraordinary revival since the financial crisis, and nothing seems to be stopping her. It is a struggle for the soul of America hence the book subtitle, I guess. She is winning because she's not considered to be very important. She is ridiculed, not analyzed, engaged, or rebutted. Yes, she was an extremist, but she matters because her extremism is no longer on the fringe. Well, doesn't that mean, then, that she's not extreme but middle of the road or common sense? And while we're at it, extremely what? Rand wrote an essay called Extremism and the Art of Smearing. Hello, Gary Weiss. Quote, she believed in individualism and opposed the institutions of society that benefited groups of people, which she condemned as the evil of collectivism. She didn't, this is so false. Look, what, she, she was opposed to things that benefit people? No, she's opposed to things that hurt people via plunder. That's what she was opposed to. Benefit away all you want. Every man was an island, he writes. Being selfish, pursuing one's rational self-interest was the only truly ethical form of existence. To be selfless was evil. She used that word often. Her position seemed almost maniacally inconsistent. She opposed the Vietnam War and thought Dwight D. Eisenhower was soft on communism. She called the philosophy that she invented objectivism. She's the godmother of the Tea Party and the philosophical bulwark that stands behind the right's assault on Social Security and Medicare. Yet during her lifetime, she was a leader of a cult, an adulterer, a, military, a militant atheist, a supporter of abortion, and an opponent of anti-drug laws. When we says, yet she was, it's clear he can't reconcile being opposed to the welfare state and being opposed to prohibition of abortion and drugs. Things that are perfectly consistent with one another, but inconsistent in what we sees as a right-winger, you see. we says Weiss, religion insists that all right-wing conservatives must be opposed to abortion and drugs, or it is they who are inconsistent, not the ideas themselves. You see, that's how the whole book is written. Which is why he expresses a feigned shock when he continues, Rand's most prominent critic was not a bleeding-heart liberal, but the patrician uh, leader of a conservative movement. William F. Buckley Jr. was so appalled by her rejection of Christian morality that he assigned the turncoat former communist, Whitaker Chambers, to write a scathing review of Atlas Shrugged for the National Review chambers said rand's vision was hateful and repulsive quote from almost any page of atlas shrugged a voice can be heard from painful necessity commanding to a gas chamber go end quote whoa simply unconscionable when you know it a communist and a conservative lying together about state (laughs) what an (laughs) eternal alliance the left-wing nut and the right-wing nut the operative word being left or as Rand herself might have put it, the mystic of muscle combining with the mystic of spirit, Attila and the witch doctor. Faith and force join together to fight and resist reality. Tune in for the next exciting conclusion when existence ceases to exist. Don't miss it and don't be missed by it. Wow. To a gas chamber go. I guess that's what inspired the title of Louise's book, Ayn Rand Nation, which is laid out on its front cover, immediately suggests Aryan Nation. You get it? You know, really clever, eh? No, it's slanderous practically. Despite the scalding reviews, continues Weiss, Atlas Shrugged sold in the millions and remains a bestseller to this day. Rand's tribute to self-indulgence, The Virtue of Selfishness, a collection of dense essays published in 1964, is one of the most popular books on the philosophy and ethics in the in the English language. That's right. I don't mean one of the most popular books at the Ayn Rand bookstore in Irvine, California. I mean in the English language, he exclaims. In 1999, when when Rand was far less popular than today, a reader survey by Random House put The Virtue of Selfishness at the top of the list of the best nonfiction books published since 1900. That kind of survey can be rigged, but it wasn't far off the mark. Amazon.com sales rankings, even before they were boosted by an Atlas Shrugged movie released in 2011, which we heard on the opening of the show, have demonstrated that Rand's appeal is truly widespread. Virtues cons- virtue consistently ranks among the best-selling books at Amazon on the subject of ethics and morality, well ahead of conventional tomes like Profiles in Courage by John F. Kennedy. So, I'm going to leave it there for now. Uh, now, I know a lot of objectivists, we're going to take a break now for the bottom of the hour, and I know a lot of objectivists might not be too pleased with me for playing what you're about to hear, okay? Listen, guys, lighten up a bit if that's the case. I want to thank our on-air operator, Ed von Adderkass, for digging this one up for us. And I thought it was a really funny spoof of Ayn Rand that you can see in its complete version. It was a bit of a visual part that didn't work too well for radio. Uh, But you can go online and Google and search YouTube for Funny or Die, Ayn Rand's private access show. It's pretty good. Personally, I did not find this spoof to be insulting to Ayn Rand in the slightest. It actually is more of a great caricature of the character of ayn rand that people like gary weiss would paint for us it's a literal out of context projection of a collectivist view of ayn rand and i think is pretty funny and well done when we return on the other side of the break we'll take a direct look at just what it is that rand said that so frightens collectivists of all colors and stripes what's all the fuss about
5: <laughs> hello i'm ayn rand and this is ayn rand's private access program Okay. No, do not applaud in unison. That is collectivist. We will now applaud unmoved and unnoticed by the applauders around us. Good. We have excellent show. Uh, We have many uh, individuals who have pulled themselves up from the muck and the mire to stand as the pinnacle of industry. But first the comedic monologue. Okay. Did you know that the mothers against the drunk drivers want to change their name? Yes, they want to call themselves, uh, let's just take away Amanda Bynes' keys. That's the end of the comedic monologue. Fate is the worst enemy of mankind. It stands as the antithesis and the enemy of thought. Please welcome Rob Delaney.
6: Hello, Anne. Yeah. Thank you for having me.
5: It is pronounced Ein. Are you sure? You know, I don't like interviews. You know why? Why? Because it is two people working together. It is not nature's way. So I also don't believe in intercourse, but I believe in masturbation. You're a stand-up comedian, so you're a solo act. Mm-hmm. You're also on Twitter.
6: Oh, yeah, yeah. I like Twitter, because if you do a good joke, it, you get rewarded, you know?
5: Splendid, a meritocracy. So the person with the most followers is the best? No, I don't think that they're yes, the best. Yes, but you must admit that Ashton Kutcher is your superior, yes? Absolutely not. No. Yes.
6: No. Yes. He has a higher number of people that follow him, but that's it. He's not my spirit. Ah,
5: you're an egoist. I like this. That's why I admire you.
6: Okay. You yeah. strike me
5: as the kind of person who, if there's a fire, you save yourself and your neighbors and your family perish, yes?
6: No, absolutely not. Now
5: don't be mad at us, please, because that is the husk in which a communist hides.
6: Well, no, I, yes, I save myself, but I also save the people I care about because I don't want them to die in a fire.
5: <laughs> I forget your stand-up. That's a very funny joke, Rob Delaney. I have a joke, too. It goes like this. Knock, knock. Who's there? John. John who? John Galt.
6: I don't get it.
5: John Galt.
6: Because you, you say it twice? John
5: not- Galt, he would never knock if he wants to come in. He opens the door. He is a man. That is John Galt. Now. <laughs> Partake in the rational self-interest, that is the oil that really lubricates the machines of the world, and promote yourself, please.
6: I, I like the way you said that. Uh, I, I'm touring, so I'm going all over the country. I'm going to New York. Oh,
5: bastion and, of liberalism. And, uh, Atlanta. Hotbed and then, for communism. And then
6: after that, I go to Chicago. <gasps> Chicago.
5: City of industry, built on steel and on railroads. What else?
6: Oh, uh, I have a stand-up special that uh, I produced myself and uh, you can get it on my website for five bucks. That's the latest big thing that I've done.
5: When I was 12, I fled to Crimea to escape the teeming horrors of the Bolshevik Revolution. Okay, that is all the time that we have, but I will leave you with this. We die alone, and then there is nothing. Okay, good night.
3: I
2: must admit, your gown is very becoming.
4: I don't have time for your little fantasies. Return me to Voyager.
2: This is no fantasy. You're in the Q-continuum now.
4: The continuum.
2: That's right. I'm simply allowing you to perceive it in the context your human mind can comprehend. This is a much more colorful representation for a human of American descent, don't you think? An elegant manor house? A beautiful southern belle, a dashing union officer, determined to win her affections despite her hatred for Yankee interlopers.
4: Enough. The only thing that interests me right now is the welfare of my ship and crew.
2: This has gone way beyond your ship. It's even gone beyond you and me. This is about the future of the continuum itself.
4: Stop speaking in riddles and tell me what's going on. I'll do better than that. I'll show you.
2: Continuum is burning. A cure in the middle of a civil war. Start explaining. Do you remember our friend Quinn?
4: Q committed suicide aboard Voyager.
2: Do you recall what I said might happen if he were allowed to take his own life?
4: His death caused this
2: conflict. It caused chaos and upheaval. Because even though he was gone, his calls for freedom and individualism continued to echo in the ears of those who believed in his teachings. Myself among them. I sounded the trumpet and carried the banner. Naturally, others followed. The forces of the status quo tried to crush us once and for all, but we fought back. And now there's a cosmic struggle for supremacy. It's terrible, isn't it? But it's also a wonderful opportunity. I fail to see anything wonderful about a war. War can be an engine of change. War can transform a society for the better. Your own civil war brought about an end to slavery and
4: oppression. But our civil war came at a time before mankind had learned to resolve disputes without bloodshed. Surely the Q have evolved to a point where you can find a non-violent way to resolve a conflict.
1: Yeah, it's kind of hard to believe that you haven't discovered freedom and capitalism, whatever that might mean to omnipotent beings. Okay, the virtue of selfishness. You know, what's all the fuss about? What exactly is it that Ayn Rand said in those dense essays that are to be found in the virtue of selfishness that Gary Weiss is so terrified of? Was Ayn Rand talking about the Tea Party and the Virtue of Selfishness? Was she supporting some political party or movement that Gary Weiss, author of Ayn Rand Nation, so vehemently disagrees with? Now, there is a five-page chapter entitled Government Financing in a Free Society in that book, in which she supports voluntary taxation and outlines a principle on which such taxation could be based. But she insists it's among the last things a government could achieve. Quote, any program of voluntary government financing is the last, not the first, reform to advocate. It would only work when the basic principles and institutions of a free society have been established. It would not work today, end quote. Now, when it comes to politics itself, I've never really held objectivists with the greatest authority or expertise on the political and often the legal applications of their own principles. You know... As Ayn Rand would say, and I'm paraphrasing a bit here, you know, that's the job for lawmakers or the political representatives, etc., to deal with the complexities of how a principle should be implemented. And, well, personally I disagree with Rand's observation that tax reform is the last thing to do, certainly going totally voluntary might be, but tax reform has to be done concurrently with spending reform. For starters, I regard consumption taxes as the most obvious voluntary means of taxation, and even there, there are limits to how much a government should be permitted to tax. I think it was Mike Harris who tried to introduce something called the Taxpayer Protection Act, which merely required politicians to tell voters in advance of their getting elected that they would be raising taxes when in office. Now, how's that working out for us so far? We've already discussed the issue of taxation on past shows, and no doubt we'll be looking at that one again. But even if Gary Weiss believes that these five pages of musings on the part of Ayn Rand could possibly be responsible for the so-called Tea Party, well, I think he's kind of lost touch with reality. But what's the rest of The Virtue of Selfishness about? Is it really the politically revolutionary document that Weis fears? Of the 19 chapters in the book, there are two, The Nature of Government and Man's Rights, which would probably fit that bill but they make no mention whatever of any political party, protest, or campaign whatever, nor do they mention any personalities or people in the news. They're purely about principles and proper definitions from the philosophical field of epistemology. If you look at the other chapters in the book, among the 19 in my copy, you'll find the objectivist ethics, mental health versus mysticism, the psychology of pleasure, racism, counterfeit individualism, doesn't life require compromise, how does one lead a rational life in an irrational society, the cult of moral grayness and the monument builders. You know, all the kinds of topics you'd expect to hear at any tea party protest, apparently. You know, are these the kind of topics we need to be talking about to get a tea party going? It'd be interesting. Now, in her essay, Man's Rights, which is the important one for our purposes today, Ayn Rand wrote the following. Every political system is based on some code of ethics. The dominant ethics of mankind's history were variants of the altruist collectivist doctrine which subordinated the individual to some higher authority, either mystical or social. Consequently, most political systems were variants of the same statist tyranny, Differing only in degree, not in basic principle, limited only by the accidents of tradition, of chaos, of bloody strife and periodic collapse. Under all such systems, morality was a code applicable to the individual, but not to society. Society was placed outside the moral law, as its embodiment or source or exclusive interpreter and the inculcation of self-sacrificial devotion to social duty was regarded as the main purpose of ethics in man's early existence. Since there is no entity such as society, since society is only a number of individuals, this meant in practice that the rulers of society were exempt from moral law. Subject only to traditional rituals, they held total power and exacted blind obedience on the implicit principle of... The good is that which is the good for society, or for the tribe, or the race, or the nation. And the ruler's edicts are its voice on earth. Now, if one wishes to advocate a free society, says Rand, that is capitalism, one must realize its indispensable foundation is the principle of individual rights. Rights are a moral concept. The concept that provides a logical transition from the principles guiding an individual's actions, yes, you and me, to the principles guiding his relationship with others, to the concept that preserves and protects an individual's morality in a social context. The link between the moral code of a man and the legal code of a society, between ethics and politics. Individual rights are the means of subordinating society to moral law. That's what they are, they're not what most people say. They basically mean that the government should obey the same rules and regulations and laws and everything as you should. They're not above the law. That's all that individual rights means. And she writes, if one wishes to gauge a relationship of freedom to the goals of today's intellectuals, one may gauge it by the fact that the concept of individual rights is evaded, distorted, perverted, and seldom discussed, most conspicuously seldom, by the so-called conservatives. The principle of a man's individual rights represented the extension of morality into the social system, as a limitation on the power of the state, as a man's protection against the brute force of the collective, as the subordination of right to might. Instead of might being right, right became might. The concept of a right pertains only to action, specifically to freedom of action. It means freedom from physical compulsion, coercion, and interference by others. It was the concept of individual rights that gave birth to a free society. It was with the destruction of individual rights that the destruction of freedom has to begin. A collectivist tyranny dare not enslave a country by outright confiscation of its values, material or moral. It has to be done by a process, and get this, of internal corruption. That's literally how you have to do it. You have to do it on purpose that way. All of us are sitting here going, oh, why are they all so corrupt? Because they're destroying individual rights and they know they're doing it either subconsciously or consciously. Then Rand explains exactly how That process of internal corruption was introduced in the U.S. by citing the 1960 Democratic Party platform. That platform offered pretty much everything the welfare state now explicitly offers in every westernized nation that has gone down this sorry path to self-destruction. You know, like the right, the right, mind you, to a useful and remunerative job. The right to earn enough for food and clothing and recreation. The right of every farmer to sell his products at the price of a decent living. The right of every businessman to trade uh, uh, free of domination of, of foreign competition. The right of every family to a decent home. The right to adequate medical care. The right to adequate protection from economic fears of old age, etc. The right to a good education. Now, what I want to know is if they were going for that in 1960, what, what was it they had before that? You know, what is that? And, of course, asks Rand at the end of this list, a single question added to each of the above clauses would make the issue clear. At whose expense? And here's how she explains how it works. The gimmick, explains Rand, was switching the concept of rights from the political to the economic. That's the trick. It's like (laughs) a magic trick. Suddenly, what were once true rights, political rights, had now become economic benefits and privileges, imposing an obligation on those who would have to provide the cost of those benefits. But you can't suck and blow at the same time. Either government is protecting our individual right not to be plundered by others, or it has to abandon protecting our rights altogether, because in the process of redistributing the wealth from those who earned it to those who claim an unearned right to it, the individual right of the earners would have to be violated in the process. Isn't that kind of self-evident? And in the process, once begun and left unchecked, You know, it'll invariably lead down the same path to ultimate self-destruction of the social order and society that permitted it. Now, we're not talking about the end of the world here, although for a large number of people it might be the case. But everyone suffers where chaos reigns, which is why society, meaning government and its laws and rules, not just us individuals, requires subordination to the same moral code as the rest of us are expected to live by. And there's the missing link. "...subordinating government to moral law is what left-wingers and right-wingers alike fear the most. I've always said from the very beginning of Just Right that religion and politics are the only two remaining areas where we tolerate irrationality and allow it to supersede morality itself. We've got to stop doing that. That's why we hear so often something to the effect of, you know, if that was me or you doing this, we'd be in jail. But because it's, well, fill in the appropriate religious authority or political authority and, quote, he gets away with it, right?" It's just amazing. I'm reminded even of Frederick Bastiat last week, who even in the early 1800s wrote, when plunder is practiced by one against another, it's called theft and is punishable by imprisonment. When practiced by one nation on another, it's called conquest and leads to glory. And of course, when practiced by a government against its citizen, it's called socialism or protectionism or wealth redistribution or some other thing. You know, freedom means responsibility. That's why most men fear it, wrote George Bernard Shaw. Unfortunately, what he meant by freedom was the list we just reviewed from the Democratic Party platform. The kind of freedom from responsibility, with a right to all the material benefits we need and want. That was freedom to Shaw, which is not freedom, of course. So I'd like to say it again, this time in the proper context. Freedom means responsibility. That's why most men fear it. Freedom does mean responsibility, and that's how you earn it. But responsibility itself has been turned into a scary thing. And it's that fear that our politicians appeal to. The purpose of government, declared former PC leader and Ontario Premier Ernie Eves to Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever on a Toronto talk show, was, quote, to redistribute wealth. That's the purpose of government to a Conservative. The Ontario government has now redistributed so much wealth that it's the kids who aren't even born yet who will have to work to pay for it. Because it was their wealth that was redistributed. Did they get a chance to vote? I don't think so. The Canadian economy, while relatively better off than most Western nations, due mostly to a healthier banking system, also suffers from this redistribution disease, and of course the U.S. is trillions upon trillions of dollars in debt to everyone from China to the bank in your local neighborhood. So you can see why the subjectivists like liberals and Gary Weiss, author of Ayn Rand Nation, and intrinsicists like so many conservatives, have a hate on for Ayn Rand. How dare she put into words on paper such obvious and self-evident truths, truths that we've been fighting for centuries. How dare she define morality and right and wrong? Well, methinks they doth protest too much. But it's a lot of fun to watch them wriggle and writhe in their struggle against, no, not Ayn Rand, but against reality itself. We'll get back to Ayn Rand's nation's anti-Ayn Rand rant and a wrap-up when we return from our following interlude which will include Ayn Rand herself on the other side of the bumper in conversation with Phil Donahue back in 1979-80 period. After this.
4: Where are we? One of your factions encampments. How? I pulled you out of the mountain and managed to hide you from the enemy patrols. Then I spotted some of your people retreating from the battle. From the look of them, I'd say you're not on the winning side.
2: You saved my life. And now it's time to end all this. I knew you'd come around.
4: Oh, Oh, so you're not willing to do the hard work. I'm an
2: idea man. Hard work isn't my forte.
4: I'd change specialties if I were you. There's the kind of trouble you're in needs more than a quick fix. You can't just sprinkle a little human DNA into the continuum and make everything all right. Why not? Those best qualities of humanity you talked about aren't a simple matter of genetics. Love, conscience, compassion. Oh. They're attributes that mankind has developed over centuries. Values that have passed from one generation to the next, taught by parents to their children. Creating a new kind of cue is a noble ideal. But it will take more than impregnating someone and walking away. If you want your offspring to embrace your ideals, you're going to have to teach them yourself.
7: I, I'm not sure I understand the consequence of this suppressed uh, kind oh, of feeling.
0: Why, which are you asking? Me? Why is it important Yeah, to w-
7: for example, let's talk about the president for a moment. Oh. Uh, if, if I'm understanding you, one of the points you'd like to make is that you want to see a president joyful at victory, able to, if not jump up and down, manifest his joy, huh? Yes,
0: sir. Spare
7: you the tough uh, person who goes through the leadership role never smiling, huh?
0: Uh, that wouldn't quite apply to the present, present no, you No, know. no, it wouldn't.
7: <coughs> so you must be encouraged by Mr. Carter's uh, response to his own feelings. I, I see, I think his smile is genuine, don't you? No.
0: I, th- I think... I think it's conditioned. He, he now, if you watch him, he smiles when he's saying something serious. And it's almost like, like a nervous reaction, you know. Mm-hmm. He just smiles. Oh, my God, I forgot that I'm on TV.
7: Yeah, well, that's all right. Well, don't forget you're on TV. But,
0: uh, no, but he is not a strong personality. Yeah. And uh, nor is he showing genuine emotion. Uh-huh. I don't think he has any ideas, and if so, he has no feelings.
7: Okay. Uh, isn't this a little dangerous, though, analyzing people via television? I mean, I don't know if I'd want you out there talking about me on the basis of what you see on
0: television. Oh, you wouldn't regret it, but i think you're right to some extent uh, i shouldn't ex- uh, go into psychology of public figures yeah. because only they only they and their psychologists can know the full truth but you know television is very revealing a failure what television is very revealing you can tell a lot about a person you can oh yes more than in a personal encounter. I don't think you can tell a lot on the basis of one one appearance, actually, do you?
7: No. And, and also, I think it's hard to read people who are in uh, actor roles, who are uh, abiding by a script and the discipline oh, of no. another creative person. No. But I do agree. I think if you watch a person on a talk show, for example, over any period of time, you get to know them, don't you, don't you think? I think so, yeah. Um, i read an article about uh, an interview that uh, jerry schwartz of the atlanta constitution wrote uh, in which you said you were all over the lot you you liked
0: charlie's angels yes Uh, but you uh, because why um because it's the only romantic television show today it's not realistic (laughs) it's not about the gutter it's not about the the half-wit retarded children and all the other kind of shows today it's about three attractive girls doing impossible things. And because they're impossible, that's what makes it interesting. It shows three young girls who are better than so-called real life.
7: Yeah, and you like and that's that? That's a
0: romantic uh, school of literature.
7: You want art to be romantic, don't you? Oh, sir. You're not crazy then about art which reflects life?
0: Not the life of the moment. Well, I want art that reflects life long range.
7: All right. You're an Aristotelian, you're you're an Aristotle devotee more than a Plato. Devotee, oh God, isn't? yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'd be happy to tell you why, but we just don't have time. Uh, <laughs> I don't mean to be. Uh, I can
0: tell you in one sense. Okay, a good sentence, if it's brief. Because he is a defender, upholder, and advocate of reason. Aristotle. Aristotle. And the father yeah. of logic. Plato is the opposite. Yeah
1: and there's your left and right. You know, I found it fascinating that a person like Rand, so committed to the principles of reality, would prefer to watch a show that she herself admitted was unreal. And I think I've kind of reconciled that because I see that in a lot in our own community. It comes down to what is versus what ought to be. And I think the essence of romantic literature is the what ought to be and to be able to project from what is to the creation of something that doesn't currently exist. And that requires a mind that entertains the unreal in the sense of the not yet existent and thus allows the unreal to be entertainment even. You know, Rand says, or Gary Weiss writes that Rand lived for politics in his introduction to Ayn Rand Nation. Yes, we're still on the introductory chapter, and we won't finish that today. I already knew that at the point, you know, that at the point that Weiss was completely unqualified to discuss Rand, let alone evaluate her if that's what he thought she was into. Rand was primarily a novelist, short story writer, and playwright. Yeah, she talked about politics from time to time, because she did a lot of articles. Uh, but all her stories and ideas were about individualism, and politics was obviously part of that picture for obvious reasons. And she occasionally wrote commentaries on the political events of her day, but even those were only written to illustrate the principles that were her real concern. Now, bottom line, why design ran matter, according to Gary Weiss, because she's popular, she, and she's popular, that's his whole deal. Well, here's why I think Gary Weiss ma- matters to the rest of us. I think he's kind of a himself a perfect caricature of so much of the media world we live in today. He could be any host of a number of political reporters who only see politics in their one-dimensional way, oblivious to the weight of logic and evidence against them. And this is unfortunate because people who are in the publishing business are in the public. That's where the word publish comes from, publication. You make public. And people depend on their information to be somewhat accurate. Fiction's okay, if you ca- if you call it that. And, you know, the, that's the problem. You get so much of this intellectual and moral garbage, like Wees's book. It's the spam of paperbacks. You know, you could call it political pornography, if you like, because, you know, it might be fun to read and very exciting to read, but unreal. <laughs> You know, Ayn Rand Nation is written proof that while some things may be black and white, some things are black and black, like the cover of the book itself. Time to shine a light in that darkness, which we will continue to do, but for now we have to fade to black as we wind it down for another week. So be sure to tune in next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you. Fade into color color it to black and white under the
0: bedclothes
6: A lot of the time, I think... A lot of the time, I think I have a really good idea, but then it turns out it's actually not a good idea. Like, I was really hungry, and I wanted a personal chef, but I couldn't afford one. So I had this idea that I started a business that's like a timeshare thing for personal chefs, <laughs> where a bunch of people pull their money, you just use a chef when you need one. And I was really excited, and then I realized that I just invented the restaurant. <laughs>